Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the, the chance to gather this morning. We, we come, all of us, for a different reason, with different motivations, different needs. But we're here, and so we pray that you would do your work in us through your word, by your spirit. So open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to believe that our wills would be willing to be conformed to yours. For our good and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Just a, a few quick things by way of introduction this morning. My name's Bart. I'm a member here. I've been for a little while. Um, my wife, Carrie, my son, Drew, is here. We have three other kids uh, not here this morning. Um, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you and um, share in this Christ-centered community with you. Um, another thing by way of introduction, uh, just my perspective coming into today, I, I was happy to learn as an adult that the Easter season, there's an Easter season, I'll put it that way, in the church calendar. Um, I remember as a kid thinking we'd often talk about Lent, and it was this 40 days that felt like long and suffering, and then a very busy Holy Week, and then Easter came and went like that in my mind, and it was like a day. So what a joy as an adult to learn, no, it's, it's seven weeks, it's a whole season, it's actually longer than Lent. And uh, here we are on uh, the third Sunday of Easter soaking in the reality of resurrection. And I encourage you to take advantage of that season. Um, think about how you can feast during these seven weeks, add something to your life to lean into the reality of the resurrection. Um, one of the things we're doing, I know I'm, I'm echoing again, I don't know what to do. I'll just keep talking, we'll get it fixed. Um, one of the things we're doing is sharing, we have a group chat with the six of us and we're sharing a picture of the day just to kind of share with each other what's going on in your life, what captures the day, what was a beautiful thing, or just the mundane, just to kind of lean into this resurrection season. So I encourage you to do that as well. Last thing by way of uh, introduction is I'm preaching today, as many of you will know, uh, because Pastor Rick is in Scotland with Karis to be able to be with Ben and Eugene for the funeral of He Jung. And so with that reality, that con the context of that reality heavy upon us, um, it is very important that we think more about the realities of resurrection together this morning. And so um, we'll do that, and thankfully our texts uh, do just that for us, especially these New Testament texts. So let's dive into them. And as we do so, I, I, want, I want you to have a story in mind, a true story in mind. When I was a kid, about nine years old, one of the most famous crimes in Minnesota history happened. There was a, a woman who was kidnapped with her eight-year-old daughter as they came out of a hair salon in Roseville. And I, I knew something of this woman. She'd been a missionary in the Philippines for a number of years in the denomination I grew up in. And so my mom knew her. And uh, after the events of this, heard her speak on many occasions. Um, but they were kidnapped, she and her daughter, and were held in Roseville in a home for 53 days. And on the 53rd day, uh, they escaped. But there was a detail about this escape that I learned later that fascinated me. Um, and that was that uh, the way they escaped, they were kept in a closet. And the way they escaped, the mom was able to uh, wiggle out the, the pin in the hinge of the closet, allowing the door to swing open. And, and when she did that the first time and the door swung open, uh, the daughter panicked. Uh, she wasn't excited. She was terrified. because uh, And she made her mom put the pin back in. Because even though they had heard their captor leave, as he always did in the morning, even though he kept a regular schedule of work and came back at predictable times, and even though they heard no other sound in the house, she was sure that it was a trap. She was sure that he was going to get them. She was sure that this did not mean their freedom. Why? 
because she had been held captive so long that she couldn't imagine anything else at that point. And I think we see the same thing in our text today as we see the unfolding reality of the resurrection land with the people who witnessed it and were those first uh, processors of it. Here on the road to Emmaus, we see these two disciples who are walking along, talking, processing these things that they've seen and heard. And these disciples on the road to Emmaus, they think that death has secured the fact that Jesus is not the one to redeem Israel, right? You heard that in the text. We had thought he was the one to redeem Israel, but now he's dead. And so clearly that is out of the question. They're amazed by a report of an empty tomb, but being amazed and having faith we see repeatedly in Scripture, are not the same thing. And so they remain sad and confused. And if you were to keep reading the section that follows this, uh, the upper room where they walk back to, the same thing is going on. You see the disciples gathered. They're hearing the reports of the guys from the Emmaus Road. They're talking about the empty tomb that the angels witness, even an appearance to Simon Peter. And even with all of that, when Jesus comes and stands among them, what's their response? They're startled. They're frightened, and they think they're seeing not a resurrected Lord, but a spirit. Why? Because they've been captive for so long, they can't imagine anything else. And us too, right? We, we've been captive a long time, my friends, not by a kidnapper, but by the reality and the shadow of death, all the frustration in this life that pulls us toward death and reminds us of it, it shapes our daily lives and casts a very heavy weight upon us. And we all feel it. Just this week, I was listening to a podcast, not a Christian podcast, not talking about the resurrection in any stretch. And in that, this person casually mentioned it's the, it's the greatest statistic in the world, one out of one die. And they've talked about the weight that that hangs over and how it sort of has to affect what do you do with your life. It's hard to imagine anything else. So Jesus, after he rose from the dead, spends time confronting the disciples and so the world with the reality of resurrection to shake us out of our captivity and complacency, to enable us to imagine something different, a reality that now includes resurrection possibilities, resurrection power, really now at work in the world. And I say confronting because Jesus initiates it. He is doing this intentionally, right? These guys are walking on the road to Emmaus. He shows up there and he inserts himself in the conversation. He says, what are you talking about? Tell me about that. Do you not see this? And he hangs around for dinner and he reveals himself to them in that meal. And then he goes to that room and he confronts the disciples and he says, look at my hands, look at my feet, touch my side, give me that fish. Spirits don't eat fish. Might be something about fish itself, I don't know. But no, he's showing that he is alive and well and physically there. And that's what he does to us today through this text. So as we look at a few things this morning, let your captivity to a death-dominated view of life, be confronted today and let your imagination be freed to consider what life in a world now energized by the power of Jesus' resurrection might hold for us. So I want us to look at three implications of the resurrection that come from our Luke 24 and our 1 Peter passage, okay? They all start with H. 
because I'm like that. So the first one is horizons, the second one is holiness, and the third one is hope. Horizons, holiness, and hope. So let's talk about horizons, the horizons that we get to see as we start to understand the implications of the resurrection. And what I mean by horizons is that that idea of boundaries, or maybe a better word is parameters. Uh, When we see the resurrection, then we get a proper sense of the playing field that we're operating under. We get a proper sense of the context, the full setting in which our story takes place. And so to begin to communicate that, Jesus confronts the disciples with, with two things. And he actually confronts the disciples in the upper room with the same two things, if you read on. But those two things are the physical evidence for his bodily resurrection and then the biblical testimony that makes sense of his bodily resurrection. Okay, so let's look at those briefly. This is giving them the horizon. So the first thing he he gives them, he confronts them with, is the physical evidence for his bodily resurrection because this is introducing a new possibility into the world, right? We didn't have this before. It's a new parameter. It's a broadening out of the, the possible context of our lives. And so he's talking to them on the road. He's trying to help them understand some things from the scriptures. We'll get to that in a minute. But then he reveals himself to them in the breaking of the bread. In that, in that act of giving them his, his, what represents his body, right, broken for them, he reveals himself to them physically alive, eating and drinking with them. And he does the same thing with the disciples in the upper room. What a kindness of Jesus to patiently, repeatedly reveal himself physically alive and well to conquer our doubts. Because it is reasonable that we would doubt this. People don't rise from the dead. That doesn't happen. That's not part of their reality any more than it is our reality. But as the resurrection expands the horizons of the story with new possibilities. And so he reveals himself, gives evidence for his resurrection to conquer those doubts. For the disciples but also for us who would have to believe their testimony. We don't get to see, but we get the testimony of those who did see. And we can believe it. They weren't unscientific fools who didn't understand how death worked. They were probably more confronted by it than we are in this day and age where we hide from it and we push it away and we put it in the darkness, right? And we put it away from us. They saw it much more. They knew that once dead, always dead. Even Lazarus was raised, but then he died, right? Probably not yet at this point, but... They had to be convinced someone had risen from the dead. And Jesus convinced them. He kept showing up and giving them evidence of his bodily resurrection. Secondly, he also confronts them not just with the physical evidence, but the biblical testimony, right, that makes sense of his bodily resurrection. You see that in verse verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he did the same thing in the upper room with the disciples there. And notice in this verse 26, was it not necessary, he says, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So he takes them into the biblical testimony to help them understand the reality of the story that they're in. Think about, well, that must have been the greatest Bible study ever in the history of the world, right? Jesus going through the Old Testament. But he goes back and he says, look, look at creation. Look at the the world began with a good and loving and a wise and brilliant God who created the world. And he created it for the sustaining and flourishing of life. I, I love in Genesis 2 where it talks about the garden that God created to put Adam and Eve into. And he says he put all the trees in the garden and they were pleasing to the eye and good for food, right? It could have just been utilitarian. He made some trees and they, you could eat from them and you could take on nourishment and blah. 
but they were pleasing to the eye as well. They were beautiful to look at. And we all know how generally good it is to take on nourishment, right? He even made that act of feeding ourselves something that we enjoy. So you look at that creation and you see a God who created life in its full, flourishing beauty and goodness. That's the intention. That's what's supposed to be. But then what about all this death that hangs over us? Well, that's rebellion. That's sin that's going against the good designs of this good and loving creator. That's where the mess comes in. That's where the death comes in. And that's why it was necessary for a rescue through atonement. Right? That's where this death and resurrection fits into the story. And that's what makes possible redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the turning away from sin in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the power of the resurrection, and the possibility of one day, someday, all things being made new. So why the scripture lesson? To capture the imaginations of the disciples and now us with the the true story. The resurrection tells you this is what's really going on. Death only gives you this middle part. The, the, the shadow that hangs over us is just the middle part. You've got to get the beginning and the end to get the full story, the full parameters of the world that we live in. And when we see that, when we see the story, we see that it's about life, not death. Death is the invader. Life is the point. And thanks to Jesus, death will be conquered. It will not have the last word. So because Jesus rose from the dead, we have those proper horizons within which to live our lives. And when we have that, then these texts tell us that two other things grow out of that. Two other things will come in our lives, holiness and hope. And I think those are hinted at in the Luke 24 passage because Jesus, as he tells, as he tells the disciples in the upper room, um, about takes them through the Bible study and so on. His first thing is that repentance and forgiveness will be will be preached in all nations, right? He says, we're going to deal with this sin problem um, because it's conquered now, because death is conquered now. But Peter makes that explicit. If you look at that first Peter passage that's in your Bible there, or in your, uh, it's in your Bible too. It's also in your bulletin there. Peter says, um, and, and if, you, if you don't know Peter's letter, if you go back, he, he's, he's all about the implications of the resurrection here. So verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All right, so Peter is like, this is huge, and we're going to talk about all the implications of that. So verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about that hope in a minute. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So it says it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, what do you think? When I say holiness, holiness is an implication of the resurrection. I think holiness needs a PR agent because we hear it and we have really bad reactions. You think, ugh, here's the weekly guilt trip from the church coming again. You know, I don't even know this guy and he's going to make me feel bad about my lack of holiness. Or you've all encountered somebody that you would call holier than thou and you didn't like being around them because of the attitude they had about their holiness or you think holiness is boring, or people who are holy are tight-lined, they're pretty, they don't enjoy the life. How can this picture you painted of the life that God designs, how can holiness 
go with that just doesn't seem to fit. But that's because we've misconstrued what holiness is. It's not the right sense. Holiness means set apart. Holiness is dignifying. Holiness is purposeful. It means chosen, wanted, useful, and essential part of the bigger thing. That's what holiness is about. Because holiness is not the way we earn anything. Holiness is the way that we live out what we've been given. Holiness is the way that we pursue the life that God intends for us. And so when you understand the larger story, the parameters, when you understand the horizons, the life that God intended in creation and is restoring in redemption, and the destruction and death that is introduced by rebellion and by going against God and his good purposes, when you understand those parameters, then you give yourself to, you set yourself apart for the purposes of that good, gracious, and loving God. Holiness. When you understand where this thing is going, holiness automatically I'm not going to live in the ignorance when I didn't have the right horizons. I'm going to live in the light of what is good and right and beautiful and life-sustaining and life-giving. And holiness has two implications. It's a, it's a way that we walk, and then it's a witness that we get to give. I had this illustrated to me recently. So I work with an organization called Langham Partnership, which is a global missions organization that helps to raise up uh, leaders for the global church around the world. One of the things that we do is we sponsor uh, PhD candidates from the majority world so that they can get their education, get their degrees, and then go back and train others in their home countries. And so I get to interview this guy from Uzbekistan. If I had a map up here, how many people would know where to find Uzbekistan? Some of you would. You're better than I am. All right, some of you, I appreciate the honesty back there, given the like, yeah, hey, it's over there, it's sort of by Russia, because it used to be part of the Soviet Union, if that helps you at all. Okay, so I get to talk to this guy from Uzbekistan um, on a Zoom call and do an interview with him. Uh, he's working on his PhD right now in Bible theology. He will be the first ever native Uzbeki to have a PhD in Bible or theology, any issue, or any uh, area related to Bible theology. It's amazing to talk to this guy. His name is Mirzabek. So Uzbekistan is um, Muslim-dominated, right? So he grew up in a Muslim family. I'm like, how did you come to know the Lord Jesus? So his aunt, uh, under Soviet rule, went to Moscow for work. And in Moscow, the day she was there, this guy who had been in prison for 24 years for preaching the gospel was released, and he went to Red Square to preach the gospel. And she somehow knew about this, so she went and heard him and heard the gospel and believed in Jesus Christ. So she comes back to Uzbekistan, now a believer, and she starts preaching to her large Muslim family the good news of Jesus. So this guy, Mirzabek, his dad is the brother of this woman, and, uh, and he's like resistant, no way, and, I, and he starts reading the Bible in order to argue with his sister, and as you might guess, ends up being converted through that. But Mirzabek says, but that wasn't, my, my aunt preaching the gospel was not the thing that, that got me interested in Jesus. I was not interested at all. But he said, my dad was a mafia, was in the mafia, and he was a terrible man. He said, I would walk home from school when I was a kid, and I would hope that my dad did not come home because it was so terrible living in my house with him. And then one day, everything changed. Like day and night, dad started being a loving presence in the home. He enjoyed his dad. He loved when he came home and his dad was there. And that's, the, and that's when he said, that's when I was like, what is this Jesus about? Because he saw the fruit. He saw the holiness that came with this guy who understood the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, that's what we get to do. 
That's what we get to do is embody in the world the life that perpetuates for eternity, the life that will endure for eternity. We get to embody that. And then as other people say, what is going on? We get to say, well, yeah, there's this Jesus guy and he died and he rose again. And he introduced all these new realities into the world that will continue forever. That's what we get to do. And that's what Peter is talking about here. We can do it because we know the story, the beginning, the end, and the point of the whole thing. So we can be set apart for God and his ways and being his witnesses. And then the other implication that comes from this, which we talk about a lot, but I think it's good for us to think about what does that actually look like, is this idea of hope, right? When we understand that the resurrection is really true, then we get to live with hope. What does hope look like? Well, Peter says this, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Set your hope fully on the, the culmination of these things. We, it's begun. We know he's resurrected. We have this hope. We're born into this hope now. But our hope is set fully on what will come when he comes back. And so hope means setting my expectations of being satisfied there, not here. Hope means that we live with tempered expectations until Jesus comes back. As we know very acutely over the last, from the last couple of weeks, death still has a sting, right? We know that it's conquered. We know it's not the end, but it still has a sting, and it still happens and still hurts. So we lament without despair. That's what hope does in the realities of this world. And remember those disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, and they're saying, we had thought Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. The resurrection gives us hope because we know he is the one to redeem Israel. And so even though it's not yet fully, we know he's the one. He is the hope. And so we cling to him. We worship him. We adore him. We lean on him. We walk with him. We know Jesus is the one. And so we give our allegiance to him. That's what hope looks like. And hope looks like understanding that even though we're waiting, even though our expectations are tempered, resurrection power is at work even now. The Holy Spirit has been sent and he is at work in the world now, bringing Uzbekis to Moscow and back to Uzbekistan to spread the gospel in that country. And because of that, we pray and we work and we look for signs of that resurrection reality in, in healed relationships, in changed hearts, in destructive behaviors left behind, or at least battled against. Maybe that's you this morning, and you're like, I did it again this week. I, I just can't get out of this addiction. I just might be setting sin. What hope looks like is not necessarily conquest, but it looks like perseverance in the battle. I'm going to fight it again tomorrow because I know one day, someday, all things will be made new. And hope looks like understanding that suffering can be purposeful and glory can follow defeat. And I'll be honest with you, I don't like that this is true. I want the fact that Jesus is already alive to mean that there is no purpose of suffering anymore. That's going to be true, but not yet. And so hope means believing that if you're going through something now, it's, it's not without purpose. Suffering can be purposeful. Glory can come after defeat. The implications of the resurrection lead to proper horizons, holiness, and hope. One more quick story as I conclude, and that is from our text itself. Verse 32, verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. 
they said to, one, to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? Will he talk to us on the road? Will he open to us the scriptures? I love that. I think that's, that's the new reality being driven in, right? Like, oh, this is open. Our imaginations are being opened up by this reality as he's telling it to us. And then they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found, that's seven miles, by the way. Remember that, that's seven miles. They'd already walked that. They're headed back. They're in for another two, two hour plus walk. They returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It's a long walk, but they had to act because of the reality of the resurrection. Right? When you, when you start to see it, when it gets into you and the implications start to, start to unroll into imagination, you have to act. Don't let the life-changing wow of the resurrection fade away. Let it sink in deeper. Let your life every day be shaped by the new reality filled with proper horizons, purposeful holiness, and that properly placed and therefore preserving hope that is in Christ alone. Let me pray for us to that end. Jesus, you know, you know what we're going through. You know the challenges, the highs, the lows. And so even as you did for the disciples here, by your Holy Spirit, would you help us to see the implications of the resurrection for our lives in general and in very specific ways so that we might understand the story we live in well, that we might commit ourselves yet again to the holiness that, that you've enabled us to be able to pursue a holiness that is life-giving, and that we might live with real hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.